Are you sitting comfortably? Then we'll begin. Everybody and welcome to a very special episode of There's Still Time, the AFTN Soccer Show. 101.9 FM, CITR Radio, broadcasting from the unceded Musqueam Territory at the University of British Columbia. I'm your host, Michael McCall, and I am flying solo this episode. So why is it a special episode? Well, today, September the 8th, 2019... It's the 40th anniversary to the very day that Vancouver Whitecaps won the North American Soccer League Soccer Bowl. Yes, the Caps were crowned NASL champions on this day in 1979. And if you've been listening to the show regularly this year and following the stuff that we've done on the website on AFTN.ca, you'll know that we've been chronicling the Whitecaps season up to this point. Today, it's the payoff. The trophy was lifted, the victory was had, the celebrations followed, and Vancouver Whitecaps were NASL champions. So to celebrate that, this week's episode is all about that team, all about that triumph. There'll be no coverage of the Whitecaps MLS team. Thankfully, they had a bye week this week, so today is all about the NASL team of 1979. We've got some fun interviews coming up with six of the guys, head coach Tony Waiters, Carol Valentine's here to see if he fancies a chocolate digestive. And we just hope that you enjoy this episode as much as I've enjoyed putting it together. Now I know there's a lot of people out there that don't see the current incarnation of the Whitecaps as following on from that NASL team from the 70s and 80s. And I can see where that argument comes from, but it's nice to have that lineage. It's nice to have that history to call upon. The Vancouver Whitecaps name still exists today. It existed back then. 
disappeared for a number of years before it was brought back. Greg Carefoot has a lot to thank for doing that. And I like to think of it as a continuation. It's good to have a history, especially in a game that maybe doesn't have that rich a history at the, the top level in Canada and America. So I do feel that you can look back at that lineage of the Whitecaps, Seattle Sounders, Portland Timbers, San Jose Earthquakes, even down to Tulsa Roughnecks, Fort Lauderdale Strikers, stuff like that. It's just nice to have these names still existing. And we're going to claim the lineage anyway. The 1979 season for the Whitecaps was following on from an ultimately disappointing 1978 season that promised so much, but saw the Whitecaps crash out early in the NASL playoffs. The 1979 season didn't get off to a great start. The Whitecaps fell to a 2-1 shootout loss at home to Dallas on March 30th. 24,850 fans packed into Empire Stadium for that one, only to leave disappointed. The Whitecaps, though, then went on a bit of a run. Eight victories from the next nine matches saw them sitting pretty in the Western Division of the National Conference. And then after that, there was no looking back really in the regular season. They had a little bit of a dip round about this summer. What's new, if you're a Whitecaps follower in the MLS era, that's been a very similar story back then as well. But they recovered to win six of their last regular season games winning back-to-back National Conference Western Division titles. They finished the regular season with a record of 20 wins, 10 defeats, winning the conference by 20 points, because there was a a weird point system. You got more points if you won by three or more goals, clean sheets, all that kind of stuff. So they finished good. That's all you need to know. Let's not break that down too much. And then came the playoffs. Over the last couple of weeks on the AFTN Soccer Show, we've been going into all the ins and outs of the playoffs, so we're not we're not going to break it down in too much detail. What we will explain, though, about the playoffs, each round was played with two matches. It was a home-and-home home series. Whichever team had the highest points total over the regular season hosted the second game. If both teams won one game, then immediately following the second match, there was a 30-minute mini-game. So that was kind of where the home advantage came in. You had a 10 minute break between the second game finishing and that mini game. That's something to keep in mind because the mini game is going to feature quite heavily in the Whitecaps playoff tale of 1979. The Whitecaps kicked off their playoff campaign with a home and home series against Dallas Tornado. First match was on August 15th. That was a 3-2 win in Dallas. And the Whitecaps followed that up with a 2-1 win at Empire three days later. That then set up a semi-final conference clash with Los Angeles Aztecs. The first game was on August 22nd, 1979, at the Rose Bowl in Pasadena. The Whitecaps went into an early two-goal lead, Carol Valentine getting both the goals, but LA fought back to force a sudden-death overtime period. There's no more goals in overtime, So then it went to a shootout. Now, the way the shootouts worked in the NASL era, if you're unfamiliar with it, kind of similar to today's penalty shootout in that each team had five chances. So there was five rounds of the shootout. But instead of taking kicks from the 12-yard spot, the attacking team got the ball at the 35-yard line. They then had five seconds to get the ball in the back of the net. The goalkeeper could come off the goal line. And it was as simple as that. LA triumphed 3-2 in that shootout 
to take a one-game lead into the second series at Empire Stadium three days later. And what a crowd packed into Empire for that one. 32,370 fans jam-packed into Empire. It was a sellout. And they witnessed a 1-0 win in a very tense game for the Whitecaps. It all came down to a second-half own goal, and that set up a 10-minute minigame. The atmosphere inside Empire, by all accounts, was magnificent in that game, and the fans only had to wait three minutes for the Whitecaps to take the lead. Kevin Hector diving to head home a Carol Valentine cross. 1-0 Whitecaps. Empire went crazy. The Whitecaps saw the game out and they were into the conference final for the very first time. Facing them in that conference final was the New York Cosmos. Now, if you know anything about this game, if you read our article on AFTN about it, if you heard about it on last week's show, this series with the Cosmos, and the second game in particular, is thought by many to be the biggest game, the longest game in NASL history. The White Cats had played the Cosmos twice over the regular season, winning 4-1 at Empire and 4-2 in New York. They hosted the first game on August 29th. Goals from Willie Johnson and Trevor Wymark gave the White Cats a famous 2-0 victory in front of an even bigger sellout crowd of 32,875. That set up the rematch three days later at Giant Stadium. 44,109 fans were in attendance for this one. And it was an absolutely amazing game. New York's plan was to attack early, get a lead, then ease up, see out the game, forcing Vancouver to chase the match as they rested for what would then be this deciding mini-game. When Giorgio Chinalia scored 10 minutes in, the plan looked good, only for John Craven to soon derail them and head home an Allen Ball free kick. Shinalia made it 2-1 seven minutes before half-time and it looked like that was going to be enough for the Cosmos but in the dying minutes up popped wee Willie Johnson to head home a Bobby Leonarduzzi cross and the game headed to sudden death overtime. There was no more goals, the game headed to a shootout and the Cosmos won it to send the match to a deciding mini-game. Remember there's no sudden death or golden goal rule in this mini-game it was two 15-minute periods and it was goalless after the first 15 minutes. The Caps, though, thought they had taken the lead in the second half when Carl Valentine rifled a shot off the bar, seemingly over the goal line. The referee gave the goal, the White Caps celebrated, but the Cosmos surrounded the referee, making him speak to the linesman, who said he couldn't be 100% sure either way that the ball crossed the line, so the referee disallowed the goal. There was no more scoring, and the game went to a shootout. Whoever won this shootout was heading to the 1979 Soccer Bowl. Tied at 2 all, Derek Posse audaciously chipped the Cosmos keeper to put the Caps ahead. The Cosmos missed. Then Alan Ball had the chance to win it and send the Caps through to the Soccer Bowl. But he was denied. Now it was up to New York's Brazilian midfielder, Nelson Murray. Could he score and take it to sudden death? Murray headed towards goal, jinked one way, jinked the other, rounded Phil Parks and with the open goal gaping, hit it in the back of the net. Only to be told that he had scored one second too late, six seconds instead of five. The Whitecaps had won. They were going to the 1979 Soccer Bowl. And we all know what happened then. Or maybe you don't. The Whitecaps were heading back to New York 
to take on Tampa Bay Rowdies at Giant Stadium on September 8th, 1979. 66,843 fans packed into Giant Stadium. A lot of them Cosmos supporters who had bought tickets thinking that they were going to be watching the Cosmos in the final. Instead, they were watching the team that had knocked the Cosmos out and obviously they were all Tampa Bay Rowdy supporters for that one. But there's a large contingent of fans headed through from Vancouver cheering the Whitecaps on and they saw a famous victory. What a final it proved to be. The Whitecaps took the lead in the 13th minute. Trevor Wymark ran at the Rowdy's defence, splitting the fullbacks, then hitting a left-footed shot low past the Rowdy's goalkeeper, Zelko Bilecki. 1-0 Whitecaps. But it was to be a lead that was only to last 10 minutes before Tampa Bay tied it up when Peter Anderson sent the ball through to Jan van der Veen, who raced by the Whitecaps defenders and hit a low one past Phil Parks. 1-1, tied at half-time. The game-winning goal was to come on the hour mark, and it was that man, Trevor Wymark, again that got it. Hitting a one-timer with his right foot into the net. 2-1 Whitecaps. And that was how it stayed until the final whistle. History was made. The Whitecaps had won the 1979 Soccer Bowl and 100,000 people, at least, crowded into Vancouver to see the celebrations. What a victory. And in the grand scheme of things of Vancouver football history, Canadian football history, this was one hell of an achievement and something that just has not been repeated by a Whitecaps team since. Yes, there was CSL championships, there was USL championships. Toronto, at least they got an MLS Cup. Boo. But there's been nothing in Vancouver like that since. So I feel it deserves to be celebrated and that is why we're going to celebrate it on tonight's show. It's a team that's gone down in Vancouver and Canadian footballing history. A team that gave us the likes of Carol Valentine and Bobby Leonarduzzi, both still involved with the club today. The starting lineup for that soccer ball win is a veritable who's who of Whitecaps folklore. You had goalkeeper Phil Parks, the back line of Bobby Leonarduzzi, Roger Kenyon, John Craven, and Buzz Parsons, the midfield trio of Ray Lewington, Alan Ball, and Carol Valentine, and the deadly attack of Wee Willie Johnson, King Kevin Hector and the Soccer Bowl's two-goal hero, Trevor Wymark. The stuff of legend. And let's not forget Bob Belitho, who came on as a 70th-minute sub for Parsons in, in that Soccer Bowl game. The majority of the squad came over to Vancouver again in May of this year to take part in the club's celebrations. The club had hoped uh, it would have been a last Saturday's match against New York City FC, which would have been very apt uh, as it was two days to the day after the, the win over New York Cosmos in New York 40 years ago. Sadly, that date didn't work out for all the guys, so the May date was selected. I was fortunate enough to sit down with a chat with six of the guys when they were over for that one. And we're going to bring you those chats in this episode, so don't worry, it's not just me talking non-stop for two hours. We're also going to bring you an interview that we did with Tony Waiter's Back in 2018, we just thought we'd bring it back for this episode as well because it, it fits in with everything and it's nice to have them all in the one episode. There's some great stories in there. Hopefully you'll enjoy the trip down memory lane as much as I did chatting with the guys. It's not just Whitecaps talk. We're going to talk about their overall careers as well. 
There's also a, a couple of similar questions put to a number of the guys, but interesting replies from them all to all those questions. So let's kick things off with the man that had the number one in his jersey and was number one in our hearts, goalkeeper Phil Parks. Almost as legendary as the cap soccer ball win was Phil Parks' massive hair. It's about as 70s as you could get, I think. And Parks is one of those players who is not only a legend in Vancouver, but a legend at another club as well. And for him, that is Wolverhampton Wanderers. Parks spent 14 years with Wolves in England, making 303 appearances for them. He saved a penalty on his debut and never looked back. He won a UEFA Cup runners-up medal in 1972. Should have had a League Cup winners medal two years later, but he broke his ankle before the final, having played in every round up to then. Parks then spent four years in Vancouver from 1976 to 1979 and was named the 1978 NASL Goalkeeper of the Year. He went on to make 78 appearances for the Caps and stayed on in North America until 1983 when he finished his playing career. He ended up playing for Chicago Sting, both in indoor and outdoor NASL, San Jose Earthquakes, the wonderfully named Oklahoma City Slickers, and finally finishing his career in Canada with the Toronto Blizzard. It was a lot of fun chatting with Lofty, as you'll hear now. The whole 1979 soccer ball, when you've had such a storied career yourself, where does that rank in it for you? Is it like one of your crowning achievements? What would you put above it, maybe? Oh, yeah, that, 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 was, that was one of my best, one of my best achievements. You know what I mean? You know, I mean, I played in, in at Wolves all, all, all my career. I played in a, I played in a UEFA Cup final, but yeah. that was all. That was a two leg thing, and it's not the same. And, and, we, and we we played an English team too. It's not like yeah. playing a, a two leg game against a foreign team. It was just like playing two league games, really. That was that was a pinnacle of my career, to be fair. I mean, I, I, as you said before, I, I, lo- I love I love Vancouver, and I really were. I, I, I left and I really looked back and wished I hadn't to be fair but things happen don't they like and everything like yeah. you know what I mean my, young, my youngest son was born here yeah he was born in Burnaby Hospital I found out when I when I agreed to come I found out that uh, my wife was pregnant like and, he, and he, he was born here so he's got he's got he's lucky he's got dual citizenship like oh that's good for him yeah yeah are they you were 14 years with Wolves but you're a West Bromwich lad, and you, yeah, you, you, know, you grew yeah. up as a West Brom fan. Yeah. Was it weird signing for a Midlands rival? No, not really. I, I, I used to go and watch the Albion every week with my dad, and then I, I played for West Bromwich schoolboys and, and Staffordshire schoolboys, and got invited to, to the Albion for the trainings. And it was it was like there was one guy looking after about thirty kids, and it was like awful to be fair. And then I got invited to the Wolves. And there was like six or seven coaches looking after 30 kids. And all the coaches were like ex-Wolves legends. And when I went back home, my dad said, what was it like? And I told him, and told him he was there. And he said, son, he said, you stay there. And that was it. 18 years I was there altogether. Well, you had a taste in North America when you were with Wolves, because you were over here in 67 and 69. Yeah, 67 we were Los Angeles Wolves. 69 we were Kansas City Wolves 
Did, did that give you a taste for? Oh yeah, here? yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, when when we went to when we went to '67, I was only 19. I, I never. My first trip out of England was to Los Angeles for nine weeks. It's not bad. And, and I'll, <laughs> I'll be honest, I didn't want to go home. <laughs> I mean, that, it, it was flower power, wasn't it? Free love and oh, everything. '67. Yeah. Like, LA was the main place, was it? well, San Francisco yeah. as well. Like, oh, we had a great time. We was there for nine weeks. So, like, you could have probably gone to anywhere in the NASL. What made you end up in Vancouver when you came here in '76? Les, Les Wilson, who played at the Wolves, Les phoned me and said I'd, I'd had a, I'd had a bit of a problem at the Wolves at the time, and. Uh, he said, do you fancy coming to Vancouver for the summer? I went, sort it, yeah, I couldn't wait, to be fair. Denny, was, Denny Veach was, was the general manager then, 76. I mean, when you came over here, like, you'd been playing with top players and against top players in England, but, I mean, what we're just talking about there, you're playing in a league where there's Pelly and Cruyff and Beckenbauer, and, I mean, what was that like for you as a goalkeeper facing these guys, these legends? It's something you don't you don't worry about because if you worry about it, <laughs> you're in trouble. You know, I mean, I'd, I'd played against in England against all the you know top strikers yeah. every, every, every week anyway, so it wasn't you know it wasn't such a problem to be fair. I was reading a story. I've got a lot of the old programs, and I was reading also Willie's autobiography recently, and there's a there's a mention in it about. A big game with New York Cosmos that got a bit out of hand, oh, and then yeah. you were threatened to kill Carlos yeah, Alberto. Yeah, yeah he, Willie got kicked in. Georgia Ocanali kicked Willie in there, and then John Craven had only been on the pitch for about a minute and punched Giorgio in the eye and split his eye. And I was the peacemaker, and I got the, <laughs> and I got the blame. And Carlos Alberto was having a go at me, and I was having to go back. And a voice from behind the goal went, Phil, that's not very nice. And I turned around and it was Pelly, and I got a great picture of my arm around Pelly with that, with that, uh, what, our trainer, I can't forget his name now, he's coming tomorrow. Said, I said, I said, uh, I said, Pelly, you're all right, but I'll kill him. <laughs> I got a great picture, great picture. The, the year that you won it in, in 79, it, it was such a good team, you weren't expected to, to do anything. On, on my site, I've been kind of breaking it down on a weekly basis, and you got off to such a good start, such a good but we, run. But we, we, we always fancied ourselves, you know. We, we, we'd got good players. And then when Borley, went, and when Borley came, Borley yeah. was like the final piece in the jigsaw. And we, wasn't, we thought we could beat anybody. We wasn't frightened to play anybody. You know what I mean? Yeah. And then, like, your, your Wolves career, everyone knows you from there. And I know you still do. You, you were doing some stuff at the club, like an ambassador yeah, I, I, and stuff. I, I, I'll have, no, I, we've got a former players association, yeah. and I'm on the committee of the former players association. Like, and we 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 we, 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 do, we do work on match days. Of you know, we take we take it in turns doing work on match days and everything. Like, and they they look the new people that have took over look after us pretty good. To be fair, and Nuno seems a really good manager. Oh, yeah, he's, he's such a, a likable guy. He's done a great well. job. Done a fantastic job. But he oh, yeah. but he's got good players to work with. You know, they, they, like George Mendes is one of the top, well, probably the top agent in the world has bought players, and if he yeah. can't find a player, who can, like, you know what I mean? And when, like, when I was growing up in Scotland, I, I was a West Ham fan, and for years I thought the Phil Parks that was here was the West Ham keeper, and it's only when I moved over here that I realised yeah, you're he, a different he, person. It's, he, do you get mistaken he, a lot? I, well, I, I, live in, I live in West Brom, and he lives in Sedgley, yeah, which is about two Midlands guys. right down the road. 
and he came to Wolves and he couldn't get a game and, and then he went to uh, he went to Warsaw and started his career at Warsaw and then went to West Ham and yeah. of course when you played here you're known for your, your hair oh it's, yeah <laughs> <laughs> you still got more than me and it's like you're older than me but it's like looking back at all those old photos like the game it's changed so much what do you make of the modern day game com- compared to back then I just <laughs> You know, I, I, I watch the game. I, I, to be honest, I just think there's too many cheats. Too many cheats, you know, they're diving and falling around all over the place trying to get fouls and get players sent off. And we never had that in our day. Like, you know, I, I don't know. It's, it's you know, it's, it, it's a great, it's a, it's a spectacle for TV and everything. Like, you know, there's that much money in it. It's unbelievable. And the people, the people... The, the company that bought Wolves Force and Wolves are one of the richest, one of the richest clubs yeah. in the world because of through the company that bought it. It's crazy, really. The, 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 the ground only holds 31. They've had full houses nearly every game, and they've got 9,000 waiting for season tickets. Oh wow! But they've just bought the plans out for a new stadium. It was, oh. it was in the paper. They're going to. It'll be in the same place, just extend yeah. it. They could never move it from where it is. And they're going to look. They're looking at a fifty-one thousand seat stadium, oh, wow. which well, would be brilliant. It's an absolute pleasure to talk to you. You played against my team in Scotland East Fife in nineteen seventy-two. I've got, oh, yeah, got yeah. a program from that. I was just reading about that last night. But thank you so much for no your problem. time, and it's a real pleasure to meet you. Phil Lofty Parks there. Obviously, as you know in every episode of this show, I like to get in as many East Fife references as I could. Had to mention the time that he played at Bayview Stadium. 1972, Texaco Cup game against Wolves. Interesting to hear him talking about when he came over in the late 60s with Wolves. What happened in the early days of the NASL? was that teams came over from elsewhere in the world. So there was a lot of UK teams, teams from England, teams from Scotland, and they located that whole team in a city. Vancouver had Vancouver Royals, and that was based out of Sunderland players. Wolves came over as well and played in 1967 and 1969. So that was his first experience of playing there. And you can imagine being in Los Angeles during the hippie era, flower power, free love, as a footballer, that must have been some fun times indeed. Now, when Parks was over for the presentation back in May, he also got a special presentation of his own. He was reunited with his jersey from that 1979 Soccer Bowl win. His son had actually sold it to a collector, but it had been bought back and loaned to the BC Soccer Hall of Fame, who are having a big celebration and a, a display at the moment for that Soccer Bowl win. So you can get along and see it. If you check out AFTN's YouTube channel, youtube.com backslash AFTN Canada, you'll see the presentation to Phil when he talks about it and gets it and is reunited with it. It's a very touching moment and certainly a, a fun moment from his trip back in May. But that's it for part one of this episode. We will be back with some more defensive chat after this. Hi, I'm Carl Valentine. You're listening to the AFTN podcast. Come on baby, do you think it's good to feel 
Like I'm lying here Swimming in memories I fear God because everything dies, babe Got a gun in the back of my car Despising my good sense is making my eyes twitch I've had enough of all your consolation I'm trying and caught in a shed tide Take my face to the inside of love Nothing to eat but fingers in the backseat Well, I met God and he had nothing to say to me AFTN's Artists of the Month there, Biffy Clyro, Scotland's Finest, from their album Puzzle. And that was Living is a Problem Because Everything Dies. One of my favourite all-time Biffy Clyro songs there, and I had that as a ringtone for a while in the UK on my phone, and over here as well initially. And then when I changed phones a couple of times, I just couldn't get the, the ringtone back, so sadly, it is no more. Also sadly, two members of the Whitecaps 1979 soccer ball winning squad are no more themselves. Not all the team is around today. Big centre-back John Craven died of a heart attack in Orange County in 1996, aged just 49. And Alan Ball, a man many credit as the catalyst to that successful 79 season when he joined in June from Philadelphia Fury. Another one no longer with us, the English World Cup winner, dying of a heart attack as well in 2007, aged 61. Now John Craven had formed such a great central defensive pairing with Everton legend Roger Kenyon. Kenyon made 267 appearances for the Toffee Men in a career that spanned 1976 to 1979, before he headed over to Vancouver. He'd have had a lot more appearances in his time with Everton if he hadn't been forced to miss basically two seasons with them, following a horrific car accident that saw him sent through the windscreen of his friend's car that he was a passenger in. He got lacerations of his throat, he had glass in his throat, and he was pronounced dead at the scene by the paramedics that were there. A policeman, though, thankfully noticed that he still had a pulse, took him to hospital, he had emergency surgery, had to go through all the recuperations, and amazingly, came back to playing two years later for Everton and then over here in Vancouver with the White Caps. Roger spent three years with the Caps and, and rounded off his English playing career with spells with Bristol City, Blackpool and Frank Sidebottom's favourite team, Altrincham FC. Mon the Alti. Kenyon missed a big chunk as well of the White Caps 79 season with a, a, an injury that he picked up, I think in the second game of the season. He'd got sent off in the first game then he picked up a hamstring injury, but he was back for the playoffs and he was a rock back there with John Craven. Also, a great fun guy to speak to, as you'll hear now. Hello, 
know you've just got here, but how does it feel coming back to, to Vancouver after all this time? Well, I was back 10 years after we won the soccer ball, which was 89, because it was a sort of a 10-year uh, reunion thing then. But so now it's like 30-odd years. I mean, I've just walked through the town there, and I, I really didn't recognise anywhere, to be perfectly I've honest. Seen old, I've only been here 10 years, but I've right. seen photos from before, and it looks so it, different. It is, and I've just been talking to Bobby there, Bobby Lenarduzzi, the same thing. Um, the stadium... I haven't seen the stadium. I've seen it on the ah. TV because they have it now in Great Britain. Yeah. Um, and it's always on a bit later on at night, and now and again I catch it. And I've said, that can't be the old stadium, that. but obviously it's all new, and Bobby's just yeah. been telling us all about it, you know. Yeah, I mean, looking back to that 1979 season, Yeah. when when you started it off, you started off so good, you had so many wins right off the bat. Yeah. Did you Was the belief in the team that you could go all the way? Well, funny enough, I missed quite a few games because I had a terrible problem yeah. with a, with a hamstring, and um, I know what didn't help me was the astroturf. I was warned before I came over there are a lot of astroturf pitches and it will it will take its toll on you. Um, fortunately, I managed to get through later on stages and we got the final as well, like you know. Um, and I missed some some of the really exciting stuff you know which I regret to this day obviously yeah yeah I've been I've got a lot of the old programs from back then so I've been yeah. kind of doing a every couple of weeks just kind of breaking it all down and one of the things there's an interview with you where you described Vancouver as God's country and yeah. it's like you you just loved it here I and you, you were thinking about moving here yeah, is that right yeah I was a fool and I say to my friends now back in England biggest mistake I ever made was not or taking dual citizenship you know I was advised I could do that because I'd been here a period of time. Um, and I was also told, believe it or not, by an immigration uh, officer that I would have no chance of getting back in again any other way. Oh. You know, um, and I went, you're joking. And he said, I'm telling you, if you don't apply now. And I often say that now, I, I wish to God I'd done it, you know. Yeah. But I'm um, too late now, obviously. The the whole soccer ball day itself. What's your over apart from winning? What's your overriding memories of that? Well, day? I think the build up to it. Um, uh, I mean, we'd had a massive game before against the Cosmos. Yeah. That was a real, as you know, was uh, extra time and playoff time and all. Is it? it seemed penalty, uh, not penalties. Uh, the thirty-five yard thing. They don't have it now, do they? No, yeah. No, that went. But all that, like you know, it, that's we seem to be on the pitch for about four hours, four and a half hours or something. So that was monumental. But uh, coming into the final, what amazed me when we walked out was the the supporters. I've never seen so many white cap supporters in my life. It was just a mass of blue and white. And talk about noise, they were absolutely phenomenal. And then, of course, after the game, what I'd mentioned before, when we came back, I've never seen anything like that in my life. And the people of Vancouver, I think they reckon there's about 100,000 people yeah, that that's what they lined the streets, and it was totally phenomenal, you know. I mean, when you won it then, there's not been another major thing. The, the team, when it reformed, they won a couple of championships in 2006 and 2008. They won some Canadian things, but there's never been anything to that scale. Yeah. Are you surprised by that? I thought they would have kicked on, mainly because I thought we had the best Canadian players in our squad. Uh, and I watched a few years later on when Tony Waiters was uh, uh, in charge of the Canadian yeah. team. And he had, he had a probably five or six Whitecaps players who I thought they would go on to obviously better things. 
I don't know why I haven't got an answer for it. Um, uh, I suppose I mean Kevin Hector touched on it earlier on. He said the thing was we were all like British players. We all knew what we were doing. We all certain players in certain areas would have all Brazilians, all Spaniards, all Germans, you know, and uh, that's what we adapted to, and we played that way. And believe it or not, I mean we played in Atlanta. I think it was like about 80 degrees. Uh, What's it called? Humidity or something? Oh, yeah. I mean, I had to change my shirt three times. Yeah. I was skinny then. I struggle with the heat here. And yeah. It's not even that but, hot. Uh, <laughs> uh, it, you know, and we just absolutely poleaxed them and beat them at their own game. You know, we were fit. One thing with Tony Waiters, he wanted everybody. Fitness was a big thing as well. And I think it still is to this day, you know. And you had such a good partnership with John Craven. Yes. Um, like he's a guy, I wish he was around, I'd love to hear all the stories. I've heard so many stories about him. Yeah. But the two of you, you were like defensive rocks, and then you're going up against some of the biggest names in football, Beckenbauer, Pelly, yeah. Croy, yes. I remember in that uh, in the final at Tampa Bay, and uh, Rodney Marsh oh, yeah. was playing up front for Tampa Bay, and he was their hero. And all the so-called fans were called the fannies, weren't they? They all used to do that, you know. And uh, we never, I mean, we never gave him a kick between the two of us. He never, he, he hardly touched it. And then all, all of a sudden, the trainer, I can't remember who the, who the trainer, the manager coach was, he put up the sign and it was his number. And he was walking over and he's walking over to the crowd. Like, is it, is, if he's one of those gladiators in the arena, you know, pleading for mercy. And they're all going, boo, boo. And when they'd stop booing, he's walking round. And me and Crabo were stood about five yards away and we go, hey, hey, Rodney, Rodney. And he's going, what? He's going, <laughs> and he just went, you can imagine, uh, you know. Because yeah. I'd read he was meant to have played in the soccer bowl the year before and then he didn't because he said yeah. he had a, an injury yeah. and he got a lot of stick for that. He was a star man, wasn't he? I mean, you were with Everton for years. Yeah. When you came come here, you could kind of like you didn't have the press breathing down your neck. You you had a bit of anonymity as well. Was that nice? Yeah, I suppose so because it was a totally different style of football. Um, I mean, for a start, I'd never played an astroturf pitches, yeah. which was for me took me oh you know two or three well at least a couple of months in pre-season to get used to it to the bounce and also in our game obviously in those days it was a lot tougher and uh, you could slide tackle people all that type of thing but you'd end up ripping the sides off the you know the flesh on some of the astroturf like especially the one at Vancouver was yeah. awful you know it's not that great to oh, and when it bounced <laughs> you used to wait 10 minutes before it came down you know we're one of the few teams that still has it which yeah. gives us a, an advantage in yeah. a way because yeah. other folk can't play in it but it does mean that other players well, I don't think want we to come had and it. play in it well we had it with Tony because we had the training ground was grass so if we were going away to play at a team that had a grass yeah. we'd, we were alright and if vice versa if we were going somewhere with the, it was at Asseturf we would train at the you know obviously the stadium Just last thing what's what do you make of the modern day game? I don't know if you ever get to see too many Whitecaps things, but oh. like Everton these days compared to Everton in the past, it's the well, game seems totally different. Like when I was yeah. a little boy yes. growing up, it's different well, to that. We were talking earlier on on the plane, and I happened to mention that there'd been a, 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 somebody give these stats that the last game of the season, out of the 20 teams, I think, in the Premier League, 15% were British. And that's, you know, and 
you read time and time again at home all these young lads who can't get a break, can't get in the team, and they're all going elsewhere. A lot of them are going to Germany, you know, are going elsewhere because they cannot get a game. And um, then, of course, the other thing is the finance. I think that has just totally ruined it for me with some teams and some of the players have abused it. Mm-hmm. The big name players, I mean, as well, you know. Yeah. There's no threat for them. No, it's, it's, it's so different. I wish I'd got a chance to see you play. It's been a pleasure yeah, talking to yeah. you. Enjoy this weekend. How long are you here for? Uh, well, I'm here for 10 days. Um, we're, we're at the Hyatt, I think, before. And then I'm, Willie Johnson's mate, uh, uh, we're staying with him for the, another oh, five days cool. before we fly back. Like, yeah. Well, pleasure so, meeting you. Okay. Thank you so much for your Lovely time. Lovely to meet you. Roger Kenyon there. So we've had my Scottish accent, we've had a Brummy accent, now we've had a Scouse accent. Hope you're all still following along at home. But interesting stuff there from Roger, talking about, with there being so many UK players in that team, I think there was about 10 UK players in that squad, as long as a big chunk of Canadian guys as well. So they all kind of knew each other's style of play. And that was something a lot of the NASL teams did. They had a core group of players that were all from the same kind of country or same kind of surroundings or or playing style. A lot of teams had Dutch players, some had Germans, some had Eastern Europeans, and others, like the Caps, had players from the UK. Now, Kenyon was part of a Whitecaps defence that season that was absolutely fantastic. They gave up only 34 goals over 30 regular season matches, with Phil Parks having a goals against record of just 0.965, keeping seven clean sheets in the process. And another key member of that backline was a local lad, Burnaby boy Les Buzz Parsons. A utility player that played as left-back in the soccer ball game, but he also played stints in midfield and even up front when called upon over the season. He was nicknamed White Shoes because of his boots of choice and he went on to make 106 appearances for the Whitecaps over seven seasons in the NASL, scoring 17 goals along the way. His connection though with Vancouver football and BC football goes way, way deeper than that. He went on to become president of Vancouver 86ers. He was the man that hired Bobby Leonarduzzi to be head coach. Then he went on to be manager of Victoria Vistas over on the island as well. He's got a big involvement with soccer over on the island and whilst there, he actually coached a very young Jeff Mallet when he was a lad. It's a story he likes to tell given Jeff Mallett his start to his, his career in football. Who would have thought back then Mallett would go on to be the businessman he was and then co-owner of the Whitecaps today? Buzz was one of the guys I got a chance to chat with when he was over for the celebrations back in May. And here's what he had to say. one of the local guys on this 79 squad, mm-hmm. what did it mean to you personally to to lift a, a soccer ball for your hometown, the team that you, you've played for for a number of years? Oh, it, 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 totally incredible. Um, the, the enjoyment that we had and the team that we had and the fun that we had, camaraderie we had, all those things, that whole year was just phenomenal. And then, you know, honestly, we, we won the, the soccer ball against Tampa Bay in New York and we believed we were going to do that. 
I mean, it was a bit of a struggle in the beginning, and that, but then as the season went on and we grew as a team together and the, the love we had for each other on and off the field and the way we uh, were a team, uh, honestly, we, the night before the game, we knew we were going to win. That whole season, I, I've been kind of chronicling it on a, a weekly basis of everything that's happened. You got off to such a good start. You had so many wins and it got you off and running right away. I mean, did that just give you the confidence right off the bat that you can go ahead and, and just push on? Well, I think, um, you know, it's probably been documented that the, the, the key to our success that year was uh, mid-season when they bought Alan Ball. Yeah. And when Alan Ball came into the team, I mean, here's a World Cup winner, and we had mostly English players as our foreign players then and uh, some Canadians. And everybody respected Alan because of the successes he had and the, type, and the player he was or you know unfortunately he's passed on now but um, and so he brought that whole team together and he was just a wonderful person in fact he changed right beside me and uh, every morning he'd come in and he'd lean over give me a kiss on my cheek say I love you man I mean that's just the type of character he was you know and here I am sitting beside a World Cup winner and he's that's the way he treats you there was no arrogance about him at all I mean looking back at your own career when you look back at what you've achieved but also you've played in a league that's had like Beckenbauer in it and Cruyff and George Best I mean can you believe that you, you played alongside or against the, these big big name players? Um, absolutely not I mean that that is obviously a highlight because you're you know it's like now when you get the young NHL players going in and you know in the years when Gretzky was playing say they have to play against him like the young players they'd be like that I mean that's what we, I was like you know I mean here I am playing up front against the Cosmos 32,000 people Empire Stadium who's marking me but Franz Beckenbauer like you know and Pele's playing it was I think the last time he played in Vancouver but I mean we end up winning the game and I have to score a couple of goals and I'm like that's like the highlight of my whole time with the white other than winning the soccer ball but I remember one time we were playing and I and they want to play me in midfield and they said and I'm looking and we're playing I think it was LA and Johan Cruyff I got a mark well I didn't quite mark him I don't think anybody could at that time he was just a brilliant player but you try to stop him from doing damage but uh, I mean you, you look and there was Giorgio Canalia there was Gerd Mueller played I mean all, a lot of stars uh, you know and they still could play certainly they had a step or two behind but they still had that ability you know to really play the game at a high level. Now, the, the squad back then, it was like a good mix of English, but there's also a good mix of Canadian players. And then in subsequent years, Canadian players playing the top level here seems to have dipped. What, what do you put that down to? Because I know you've coached and you've been involved a lot in the game locally. You know, it, that's a tough, really difficult question because, um, you know, it's just the era of the time when there was Bob Belaito, Bobby Leonard Doozy, myself, and Dale Mitchell started out with us but went on and had a wonderful career at Portland. I mean, there were... You know, Jerry Gray come up through the system out of Ontario, came and played. And, you know, there was the local guys like Danny Lenarduzzi, Carl Shearer, Stevie Nesson. They all were, you know, great players. I, you know, I don't know what it is, what I think, whether the dedication that these players or I had. I mean, I remember growing up in Burnaby where every day after school I was kicking a ball and the guy that lived down the road from me was a goalkeeper. So I practiced with him and we'd, you know, go out. And that was the only thing that we did, you know, and I think that's... You know, the dedicated. Now, you know, kids, I don't think they're as dedicated as they were. Although the opportunities are there more so than we had, but I don't think the dedication's there. And then, like, after your whole Whitecaps career, you were involved with the 86ers and you were the first GM at the club there. And then I believe you hired Bobby and 
I mean, what, what do you remember about the club coming back and after a couple of years being away and then a new team in, in Vancouver? Well, what, when we started that, uh, I, had, I moved over to Victoria already and, uh, you know, there was an advert about they were looking for someone to run the club or something and then I know I spoke with Bobby and Bobby said, well, you should put your name forward. So I went over and got interviewed and got hired. I had been working for the club, the Whitecaps, in the marketing and sales after I finished playing two years prior to them folding. So I had experience with that. I had contacts in the in the sponsorships and things like that and I also had soccer knowledge and then it was just natural that Bobby was going to be involved with it in, in the coaching end of it and so the two of us you know put things together I, me in the office and him on the field well and Carl came back because we brought Carl in he was on loan from an indoor team and we worked that out where you know we brought him in for fairly free Dominic Mobilio was playing I mean you know Dale Mitchell came and played I mean we had uh, John Callis so we had like such a good team of all the local Top talent. It, they were, we were fun to watch. Like we, we were a good team. Been involved, obviously, with football on the island a lot, and I believe you coached Jeff Mallet as well when he was a, a youngster. Well, yeah. When I moved over first, I, I got associated with a club called Victoria Athletics. Uh, a fellow named George Pecos, who was the that scored to get Canada in the World Cup that year. Well, George and I were friends, and so they said, "Well, why don't you come out and get involved with athletics?" So I got involved and uh, started playing and uh, helped coach, and then. Jeff was one of the players on the team, so I uh, coached and, and played with him. And so a uh, good little player, and they went off to college, and then the rest is history on his behalf because he went on to you know, be the Yahoo and then further from that and get on to bigger and better things. But, no, he's, he's always been a class guy. I've kept in touch with him. You know, um, I got nothing but respect for him as an individual, and, and uh, I know he loves it, and, and I know he's going to be here tomorrow night, and I'm looking forward to seeing him. And last thing, you were with obviously the Vistas for a, a little bit as well. There's a new team on the island now. Did did you think a, a professional football team would ever return to Victoria? No, I think that uh, it's because of the uh, World Cup that they want to have a Canadian league. I mean, obviously our league folded at the time of that, but it, it was a little bit different now. There's a little more financial support from marketing and from Canadian soccer, CONCACAF. Everybody's throwing more money at it. They want to make it work. The, the two guys that run it and the, the owner, Dean, Dean Sheringham, and and uh, they they are wanting to make it work. They're they're working hard at it. It's a difficult sell in Victoria. The team I've been out there. I've seen the games. Uh, I think there's some great talent. A lot of them came from the Whitecap organization, but individually there's good talent. They got to blend as a team. They're quite young, uh, and they need to put together and throw together a bunch of wins to get that excitement. But uh, I've been out there. I enjoy it. Um, you know, and I can only you know hope the the best for them. And I think everybody that's a soccer person in Victoria wants them to succeed. Great, thank you so much for your time today. Okay. Buzz Parsons there. For me, what makes a team particularly special and a special part of the community? It's when you've got local guys playing on it. And Buzz Parsons fitted that bill to a tee, along with the likes of Bobby Leonard Doozy and a string of others. If the Caps ever were to win an MLS Cup in this era, will we have that? I'm sure there'll be Canadians on it. You look at the squad just now and there's that whole host of Canadians. But there's not local lads. There's not guys that have kind of come through the academy that are getting significant minutes with the first team. Theo Bear may be one of those guys. Who knows, if the White Cats were to win the MLS Cup, which 
right now, after the season the Whitecaps have had, it's kind of like pie in the sky thinking, you've got to say, but you've got to have hope. If you don't have hope as a football fan, I don't really know what you've got. But it would be nice if we were to win that MLS Cup to have some Canadian guys on that team, to have some local guys on the team. One of the guys I had high hopes for of doing that, of course, was David Norman Jr. And I said we weren't going to talk about any current Whitecap stuff in this episode, but I do just want to talk about, about that. David Norman leaving the Whitecaps, sadly, this week, going alone to Pacific FC in the CPL for the rest of the season, and then next year, a fantastic opportunity, joining new expansion side Inter-Miami. David Beckham's team, he's going to go and play with them. All the best to David. I wish you had made the breakthrough here. You should have made the breakthrough here, but we'll be cheering you on down the line. It's always been a pleasure to talk to you, and we'll have you on the show again soon. Well done, David. All the best for the future. And David Norman Jr. is a battling midfielder, a rugged midfielder, not afraid to shy out of a tackle. And the Whitecats had a lot of those guys on their 1979 NASL squad. And we'll be talking to one of them after this. Hi, I'm Mark Dos Santos and you're listening to the AFTN Soccer Show. Mama Sharona. A classic song from the knack there. And that song was the number one single in both Canada and the US the day the Whitecaps won the soccer ball on September 8th, 1979. If you've been a regular listener to the show, you know that all year long we've been playing songs from 1979. I've enjoyed it so much. It's one of my favourite years of music. I've said that time and time again. Even though this is the the last of our soccer ball coverage on the AFT and Soccer Show this year, I think I'm going to continue playing some songs from 1979 for the rest of the year. Maybe not every week, but there were some classic releases to come later on in the year. Now, the Knack were also number one in the album charts in the US and Canada that day when the Whitecaps won the soccer ball as well with their Get the Knack album. Number one song in the UK was still Cliff Richard's We Don't Talk Anymore, with Led Zeppelin in Through the Outdoor, the number one UK album. There was no big movie releases, sadly, this week. Two of my all-time favourite movies, though, were actually released in the days following the Whitecaps Soccer Bowl success. September 12th saw the film Scum released. Two days later, Quadrophenia. I love both those films, both of them actually starring Ray Winston, who we have had on the AFTN Soccer Show. He had the leading part in Scum and a kind of bit part in Quadrophenia, where, of course, Phil Daniels was the lead. I just love those films. Quadrophenia is in my top three films of all time, alongside Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, the Gene Wilder version. 
and Nightmare Before Christmas. Scum probably features in my top five as well. They are fantastic films. If you haven't seen them, check them out. Quadrophenia is set in the 60s in England. It's a story of the mods and rockers and the fights that they used to have at Brighton Beach and features a lot of music by The Who and just the mod culture of the time. And Scum is set in a Borstal Romance Centre. Uh, it's pretty violent, but it's two classic English films. The Whitecaps, of course, had some English classics of their own, and one of them was midfielder Ray Lewington. The Lambeth-born Lewington spent four seasons at Chelsea, making 85 appearances and scoring four goals before moving to Vancouver in 1979, where he just played that one single season here. But what a season to have. Going out with a bang, winning a championship. You can't top that. May as well not follow that up. He made 29 appearances for the Whitecaps that season, scoring two goals before returning to the UK to play for Wimbledon, two spells at Fulham and Sheffield United. But it's probably more his managerial career that most will know Lewington by over there. He managed Fulham, Brentford, Watford before becoming assistant to Roy Hodgson at England from 2012 to 2016. Obviously I don't want to dwell too much on any English stuff as a, as a Scot, more about the Whitecap stuff. That's just exactly what we did when I caught up with Ray Lewington back in May. So, Ray, how, how does it feel being back in Vancouver? When was the last time you were back? I actually come here about uh, 10 years ago. My wife and I were, were doing the Rocky Mountain uh, train ride, which was superb. And uh, then we were going down to San Diego and we decided to stop off and uh, visit Vancouver and, and really just trace our steps, really, go back to where we live. We only had a few days, so we went back to where we, we lived oh, here no. and we went round to all the places where we took people who were coming over from England when we were over here uh, all the touristy spots we just went round there and familiarised ourselves with what you know where we used to live and uh, yeah it was lovely it was lovely to come back what was it that brought you not even just to Vancouver but over to the NASL back in the day I know a lot of players from England and Scotland came over but what what was it that tempted you in particular well I think it was after meeting Tony to be honest I um, when he asked to see me, um, I didn't really know in my own mind what I wanted to do. I was a little bit, I'd been a Chelsea boy and been with Chelsea since I was 10 years old. And at 22, I was told that I was no longer wanted. And there was a little bit of a um, sort of a, a reaction, you know, to myself that suddenly um, I was having to leave the club that, you know, I grew up with really. And then Tony, his timing was great because he'd come to see me. And he just said, listen, you know, you haven't got to commit yourself for a long time. We'd love to have you come over. And if you don't like it after a year, then by all means, you know, you don't have to come back. Um, But, you know, I couldn't have picked a better year. It was a fantastic year. (laughs) The place sells itself. Vancouver's a wonderful place, beautiful place. And uh, and we had an absolutely fantastic time. Having an English coach, having so many English guys in the locker room, did, did that help the team really kind of bond? Because you, you've all kind of been brought up playing the same way. Yeah, absolutely, 100%. Uh, I felt that, um, you know, we all knew each other's style of play, even though none of us had played with each other before. But we, you know, we were typical English-type players. 
and collectively when that gels the English style when everyone works so hard and makes it difficult for opponents uh, then we're tough to play against and we certainly did that at Vancouver where we, we played the typical English type of game massive underdogs no one took us really seriously but you know we you know we proved that we could play and uh, we had such a great season Now when you look back at that time in the league the fact that you had like Beckenbauer and Cruyff and George Best and all those guys in it is that the stories that, that you tell your kids and grandkids it's like I've played against these guys yeah absolutely I mean when they, they do come up you find yourself saying that you know he played for Cosmos he played for LA and things like that I mean there was the, the that particular year I thought year after the World Cup that I think that you know the NASL was strong very strong um, so yeah it, it was a great time to, to play over here it was an exciting league it was full of quality quality players who we'd all seen on the previous year playing in the World Cup so it was it was fantastic yeah, I try and forget that World Cup though. that wasn't a good one from a Scotland fan the like the, the whole soccer ball day obviously winning's embroiled in your head but what else stands out for you from that, that day in New York I don't know just the, the basic atmosphere about the place the lead up to the to the final I remember um, it was my birthday the day before and, and Anne had come over and uh, she was going to the game and she'd come into the hotel the night before which I, I've never ever done I've never seen uh, my wife the day before a game you know we were usually put off in a hotel and no one's allowed in but Tony allowed Anne to come in and we had dinner together and uh, I remember saying to her this is, this is like it's going to be the biggest day of my life this one you know this is fantastic don't think people realised how big it was yeah. and uh, and it was so exciting going in uh, to be honest like a lot of players do say and it is absolutely true in many ways a final day is like a blur you, it, it goes pie and you, you, your head's in the clouds so much that you actually you don't actually remember too much of it except the you know the buzz that you're getting that you're going to be performing in the NASL final and I, you know I must admit I, I always thought we'd win it but I, I you know I, it didn't enter my mind that we were going to lose it um, which we did and I thought we did quite convincingly just last thing fast forwarding quite a lot to being assistant manager with England did you ever think you'd get into that position as a coach no no one does no one does it's impossible uh, it's such a strange game football um, the opportunities that you get when you least expect it um, it obviously came from the association I had with Roy um, we'd been at Fulham together and then Roy moved off and uh, went to Liverpool. I wasn't allowed to go. They, they didn't allow me to, to go. And uh, I thought that would be the end of it. I was going to join him at West Brom, but the, it was only a, for a one-year contract that the chairman was willing to, to give, and I didn't want that type of contract. I wanted a bit longer, a bit more security. So really, I thought that that was it with Roy. And then suddenly I get a phone call out of, out of nowhere just saying that um, he's got the job and uh, he wants me to be the number two. I mean, how do you sum that up? I, I just don't know. I mean, my family all thought it was a practical joke uh, when I told them, but, you know, these things do happen. It's uh, Football can be a strange game. I'll leave it there so you can get to the celebration and thanks so much, Tertonti. It's a pleasure. My thanks pleasure. so much, Ray.
Ray Lewington there and Ray was an absolutely delightful guy to speak to. I was really enjoying chatting with him. Wish we could have talked more. We'd been talking before I started recording, just about football in general. And then the Whitecaps were doing that Jersey presentation to Phil Parks that I mentioned earlier in the show. So we kind of had to wrap everything up quite quickly towards the end. So there's a lot more I was wanting to ask him. We'd love to get a chance to, to sit down and just talk more about his very interesting and varied footballing career, both as a player and as a manager. Right now, Ray is back in London, back working with Roy Hodgson. He's been his assistant at Crystal Palace since September 2017. Managers have this pairing, they just like to go together. Like, But Roy Hodgson, Ray Lewington, they seem to be a pair that's just always together and they've had a lot of success everywhere that they've gone. And as a Wimbledon fan, it was great to talk to a guy that had been with Wimbledon through the, the early years of that. That was one of the things we were, we were talking about before we were recording. Of course, Crystal Palace are Wimbledon's rivals, so I'm not too sure what I think of that. But it was delightful talking to Ray Lewington. He only had the one season here, as we said. But what a season to have. Lewington was part of a all-English midfield trio that played for the Whitecaps in that Soccer Bowl Championship game against Tampa Bay Rowdies. Alan Ball and Carol Valentine being the other two members on the team. As I mentioned, sadly, Alan Ball, no longer with us, had a gloried career winning the World Cup with England in 1966. And had a wonderful playing career, 116 appearances and 40 goals for Blackpool, 66 goals and 208 appearances for Everton, 45 goals and 177 appearances for Arsenal. And then just before he came over to the NASL, he was playing with Southampton, had 9 goals and 132 appearances overall for them. His first stint in the NASL was with the Philadelphia Fury, 1978 and half of 1979 season he was with Philadelphia, scored five goals and 33 appearances, had actually played against the Whitecaps for Philadelphia at the start of the 1979 season. But Philadelphia were going through a managerial change and a player personnel change and when Tony Waiters sort of got the idea that Alan Ball was going to be surplus to requirements there in Philadelphia, he swooped in to get him. Brought him to Vancouver and, as I said, he is a guy that so many people feel was the catalyst to the Whitecaps going on and winning the Soccer Bowl in 1979. He ended up making 31 appearances for the Whitecaps in 1979 and 1980 seasons. 10 goals altogether he had for the Whitecaps and he was phenomenal in that 1979 season for the Caps. Ball scored 8 goals and added 17 assists for the the short time of the 1979 season he was there. Imagine signing such a difference maker in the summer. Or or at any time here in Vancouver, it just feels it's been a long time since we've had a player that can come in and do something special like that. Alan Ball was that man. Sad loss to the game, wonderful player, wonderful storied career. He'd also had a brief spell managing Philadelphia Fury. He didn't want to. The manager was fired over the course of the season and Ball took over for for the rest of that, that season. But he had no interest in getting the position permanently and that was really part of the reason why he moved on to the Whitecaps. And Philadelphia's loss, very much Vancouver's gain. After Ball finished with the Whitecaps, he went to play a few more years with Blackpool, Southampton, Eastern AA for two seasons in Hong Kong and then finished off his playing career with Bristol Rovers. 
He had 72 caps with the England national team, getting eight goals there. And then he moved into a managerial career. He managed at Blackpool, Portsmouth, Stoke City, Exeter, Southampton, Man City and Portsmouth. A great player, a great career and a real difference maker for the Whitecaps success in 1979. Now the third member of that all-English midfield trio is a man that needs no introduction at all. He's our darling, Carol Valentine. The Manchester-born Carol Valentine came to Vancouver as just a, a young whippersnapper. He'd been playing with Oldham, came to Vancouver in 1979, became a legend, still here today. He ended up playing five seasons for the Whitecaps from 1979 till their last season in 1984. 44 goals and 165 appearances. After the NASL folded, he went back to England, played with West Brom, but then came back to Vancouver in 1987 and was a member of the Vancouver 86ers for 12 years, from 87 to 99. 31 caps for Canada, played at the 1986 World Cup, managed the Vancouver 86ers from 94 to 99, currently the White Caps ambassador. He's done so much in his time here for the game in Vancouver. He's a wonderful person to speak to and someone that I'm proud to, to class as a friend. But of course there is one burning question. Does Carol Valentine fancy a chocolate digestive? So Carol, you're sitting at home at night. What would be your hot beverage of choice, a tea or a coffee? Cup of tea, no doubt. And are you a biscuit person? And if so, what is your biscuit of choice? Uh, digestive, and they've got to be dunked in the tea. And is that chocolate digestive? No, no, oh. no chocolate. Digestive, no chocolate, dunked in the tea, moist, got to love it. That's great. Thanks so much. Cheers. Anyone fancy a chocolate digestive? Anyone fancy a chocolate digestive? so close Carol Valentine does fancy a digestive just not a chocolate one always enjoy speaking to Carol we speak to him regularly at Whitecaps games and at training he's just a delight to talk to we've had him on the show before that's why we haven't done a kind of interview with him on this episode of the podcast but we've never really sat down and done a whole career retrospective with him so that is something I'd like to sit down and do with him Absolute legend in Vancouver. Glad he chose to call Vancouver and Canada home. And of course, Carol Valentine was just one of a large contingent of UK players that called Vancouver home over the years, and especially that 1979 season. And we'll be back with two more interviews with two of those players after this. Hi, I'm Alfonso Davies, and you're listening to the AFTN Soccer Show.
Welcome back to the AFT and Soccer Show on CITR Radio, 101.9 FM. Broadcasting from the unceded Musqueam Territory at the University of British Columbia. That was the police there, with their classic song, Message in a Bottle. From their 1979 album, Regatta de Blanc, that song was released in the UK on September 7th, 1979 the day before the Caps' own classic, their soccer ball victory. The song got to number one in the UK shortly after, and it reached number two in Canada, but only number 74 in the US. Now Sting also sang in their later song, Walking on the Moon, that giant steps are what you take. And the Whitecaps certainly took giant steps in the history of North American football, by winning that soccer ball in 1979. And one man that played a very pivotal role that season was King Kevin Hector. Now, I talked about the Whitecaps players that are legends, not just here in Vancouver, but at another club as well, over in England. Kevin Hector is a legend at three clubs. Starting his career with Bradford Park Avenue in 1962, He spent five seasons with the Bradford side, scoring an amazing 113 goals in 176 appearances. There's going to be a a few of you listening to this show that have never heard of Bradford Park Avenue. Bradford City, yes. You may be wondering if they're the same team. Well, no, they're not. Bradford Park Avenue were formed in 1907 and their tenure in the English Football League lasted until 1970 where after a string of financial irregularities, they were replaced in the Football League by Cambridge United. Forced to join the Northern Premier League, they had to sell their ground in 1973, sharing initially with Bradford City, but unfortunately the club went into liquidation on the 3rd of May 1974, went out of business and immediately reformed as a Sunday League club. The club though was reformed in 1988, Reborn. They're currently in the National League North. Step 6 in the English Pyramid, Step 2 in the English Non-League Pyramid. Two promotions away from regaining their place back in the Football League. But back in their days of being a league club in the 60s, Kevin Hector played for them and was a prolific goalscorer. His form with them earned him a transfer to Derby County. He made 430 appearances for the Rams. It's still a club record that is held today, scoring 147 goals. He played under the legendary Brian Clough, winning the English First Division Championship twice, once in 1972, once in 1975, won the Second Division Championship in 1969, and they reached the semi-finals of the European Cup, the FA Cup and the League Cup. Hector is still considered a legend at Derby. He will explain why he left them in 1978. And in 1978, that's when he came to Vancouver Whitecaps. And we are so glad he did. Three seasons he spent here in Vancouver, scoring 39 goals in 63 appearances and forming a deadly front line in that 1979 season with Willie Johnston and Trevor Wymark. He'd had a great debut season for the Caps in 78, scoring 21 goals and adding 10 assists. 
And without those goals and assists that he brought in 79 and the form that he brought and the link-up play with Weimark and Johnston, the Whitecaps would never have got to the soccer ball, never mind winning it. And it was a real pleasure to get a chance to sit down with Kevin to talk about his career in Vancouver, at Derby and a lot more besides. Sit back, grab your favourite beverage, a chocolate digestive and enjoy the words of King Kevin Hector. Kevin, obviously you're known as a, a legend in Vancouver, Derby County as well, Bradford at Park Avenue. Where does Vancouver rank for you in amongst everything that, that you've done in the game? It, it ranks right up there at the top. You know, I enjoyed three wonderful years here. And um, what helped was that, you know, I was called the king in Derby. Yeah. You know, where the fans, fans took to me straight away. And what happened was the same here. You know, they started to call me the king in in Vancouver, and uh, you know it's absolutely tremendous. You know, for the fans to uh, to give you that kind of support. That whole season, the soccer ball winning season, when when you guys were going into it, did you have the belief that you could go on and, and win it? I think so. From you know, from the season before that, we had a good season where we we got to playoffs and got knocked out. And we thought if we could give, if we could keep um, the nucleus of the side together, you know, with the good Canadians as well, and probably improve in a couple of positions like Trevor Wymark came and um, and one or two others, if we could do that, we'd have a good chance of winning the soccer ball. Like you had ten goals in ten games at one point to start off the season, and the partnership you seemed to have with Trevor Wymark and Willie Johnson, it just seemed to be like terrifying for other teams. Yeah. I played against Trevor, and uh, when when he, was, when he played for Ipswich, and I was at Derby, and always admired him as a goal scorer. And uh, when he came to Vancouver, I thought uh, thought to myself, I'm going to be all right here playing alongside him. And also Willie on the wing getting the crosses in, and uh, and it proved it in the end. You know that um, Trevor and me got the goals and uh, helped to win the soccer ball. The whole soccer ball day, obviously winning's something that sticks in your head. But what what are your other memories of that day, like the crowd and the atmosphere and just the, the whole occasion? Yeah, the usually when you talk to footballers, what's played in the final, it usually it's usually forgotten. But um, for some reason, you know, I can remember it right from because to start off with that week, myself. Alan Ball and, jo- and Tony Waiters went early before the rest of the team, and uh, probably not a lot of people know that because we had to, we had to do um, a lot of interviews the week before. So the three of us won- went out. Uh, I think the final was probably on the Saturday. We went out the Tuesday before the game, before the rest of the players. So it was a long week, you know, and I had a long, long, <laughs> a long week to to. Um, to try and uh, figure out what was going off and and work out what we were going to do and we were favourites for that game after after the, after knocking the Cosmos out in the semi-finals we were definitely favourites for that game and I thought well favourites don't always win a game like yeah. that in a final you know if we if we don't perform like we can do and they and they do you know we could be in trouble but I thought I thought right 
from that Tuesday I got in New York and the interviews we did out there, I thought, we've got a good chance of winning this now. The, 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 the team then, it's probably the last big thing that a Vancouver soccer team's won. They've won some Canadian leagues, they've won some lower leagues. Did you think that would be the last big occasion that a team from Vancouver would, would have a championship? No, I, I, I thought after that that they would take it on and, um, and be a big force. In, in uh, What was that league called then? The NSL. The NSL. Yeah. I thought they'd have been a big force in the NSL then, but, you know, things like that don't happen unless you work hard at it. And, yeah. and something must have happened at Vancouver after I left. That um, I think it's just so many players... Yeah, did players, so well, and then you go yeah, back to England. And well, I think a lot of players left in there and uh, and went to other places, and uh, not just on about the English, but the Canadians as well. One or two good Canadians yeah. who went to uh, went to play in America, and you know, once once you once you um, you lose your best players, and you don't replace them with good players, that's when you're in trouble. And I yeah. think Vancouver did that. Now your career at Derby. It's rare these days to have a player that stays with a club more than a couple of seasons, never mind as long as you did. What was it that made you want to stay there as long? And then after you, you were here, you went back to them as well. What was it about Derby that was just so well, alluring for you? It was basically because we were successful. You know, from when Brian Clough came in um, '67, um, we won the we won the second we won the second division '68 '69. And went into the first division, and then won it in seventy one, seventy two, and then again in seventy four, seventy five. Yeah. So that they were the best, they were the best years for me as a footballer. I was at my peak in them years. I played for England twice, and that uh, unforgettable game against Poland <laughs> when yeah. we finally got knocked out of the World Cup. <laughs> but I was, in, I was in my peak then, and um, I was loyal as well. But, Basically, That's what you don't get these yeah, days, though. yeah. But basically, it was because we were successful. Why, why, why leave? Why leave a club who's doing well and got some good players like we had and uh, winning the league? You know, there was no reason. The only reason you would leave is for money, and I wasn't bothered about that. All I wanted to do was win things. And um, that's what I did. What was it like having Brian Clough as a manager? Because he's a guy, I've seen all the documentaries, I've read books about him. He's a guy that's always fascinated me. I'd love to have had a chance to, to chat to him. What was he like as a boss? He was a young boss. Yeah. First, when he first came to us, he was only 27. You know, he, he finished his career early with a knee injury. And he was a young boss, working his way into, into uh, football management. He wanted a coach. He never coached you. He trained you. He would he would train you. He would run you, and he would play five sides with you. But he won't coach. He won't a coach where he, uh, he he did drills with the, with the ball or, or did set pieces and things like that. He never did that. But but what he did was he made you out as if you were the best player in that league to all the players, and we believe that what he says, and we took it on the pitch. Um, with us and he didn't have success straight away at, uh, at, at Derby I mean the first the first 18 months were, were, he, he made some poor signings and um, we didn't do too too well the first 18 months but after that he made one or two good signings which which um, went with the players what he'd got already there 
and it took off from then. And once it once it took off, it just went and went and went. And the fan the fan base went from twelve thousand right up to forty thousand with a success. And that's what it did. It was slow. It wanted it wants it wanted success straight away. But it just gradually went because he, he made some good signings to go with the players what he had, and it just took off from there. And it was sad to see him go in, in 70, yeah. 74. Did, did you ever watch the, the Damned United film? Yeah. Was did, was that how much of that? No. Yeah, no. Oh, it's, it's uh, it, you know knowing 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 Brian and uh, and and it, it was it was it was just a film to sell it. I, I like it, but obviously I don't know, yeah, the, it, it don't was, know the background. It was good, and, and uh, the, 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 the person who did Brian Clough, he, he, he was good in yeah, that film, but he was excellent. It, uh, it, it was a lot of false, a lot, a lot of false things what went. Uh, it was A lot of things were done in that film to sell it. That's what happened. Yeah, and I want to ask you about Bradford Park Avenue as well, because they're a team that's also fascinated me because they kind of had a rebirth in the late 80s. Have you... Do you still have anything to do with them? Do you no. follow them or anything? No. Um, I did, actually. I, I, I went there. Uh, they invited me over three, was it three, four years ago? They had a, they had a celebration season. Because um, they're in non-league now. They're, yeah. they're in the league be, below the conference. Yeah, just two steps below. away they're, now. They're, try, they're, trying, they're trying to get back up there, but... They, they, they had a chance to get in the conference this season, but they got knocked out in the yeah, playoffs. Yeah. They got knocked out in the playoffs. But four years ago, they, um, they invited me over because they were going to celebrate the season before I signed for Derby County. I scored 45 goals in the season. And it's a record. Yeah. A record for, that, for the league. And they wore these shirts, these white shirts, with Kevin, with Kevin Hector. On on the on the on the on the uh, forty five goals, nineteen sixty four, season. Oh wow! And they wore these shirts for a season. Well, and I nice. thought, what? Well, uh, absolutely lovely. That's lovely, yeah. You know, remembering them goals from that season, and um, when I left when I left them, and there was a lad called Bobby Am who scored goals as well with me. We played up front. He left. He went to another club, and after that, they just. They just um, they just went down, down, yeah. down, down. They always had money. And it was sad. It was sad it. to see because you know they're one of the founders of the football yeah. league, and uh, it was sad to see him go down. And they lost the ground as well. Yeah. You know that went, a new one that went derelict. Yeah. You know after a while, and it was sad to see that happen. And um, you know it'd be nice to see him if they could fight back. And I was, you know, I was hoping they were going to do it this season in the playoffs because they have been playing well this yeah. season. I've been, I've been following them the season. last couple of years because I just, I like the story. Just very yeah. last thing for me, and I'll, I'll let you go. You, you probably could have had the pick of NASL teams to, to come over to. What was it about Vancouver that that made you decide to come here? Alan Inton. System I've coach. had some chats with Alan. Yeah, system coach with uh, Tony Waiters. Yeah. Um, as I said, on uh, upstairs. Um, when I left, when I left Derby, Tommy Doherty had just taken over yeah. as manager, and he made it clear that I wanted his plans. And I'd been there ten, eleven years, and he says, you know, you best find another club. So I got one or two offers from league clubs uh, in England, and 
I was humming around thinking what to, what to do and this and that. And then I got a call from Alan saying, what about Vancouver? And I had a chat with him and he sold me Vancouver. Told me what a wonderful place it is and that I'd enjoy it, I'd enjoy the football and uh, I'd enjoy the, uh, the, the, you know, the, the way of life here. And uh, he sold me it and he was right. You know, it's the best, best move I could ever make coming to Vancouver at that time. We are an absolute legend. It's a pleasure speaking to you and enjoy your trip here. Yeah. It's nice to see you. Kevin Hector there. And we could have talked a lot more. Trust me, it's like so many things to talk about. He's had a fascinating career. Amazingly, despite all those goals, 113 goals for Bradford Park Avenue, 147 for Derby, he only made two appearances for the England national team. Both of those in 1973, his debut in the fated World Cup qualifier against Poland at Wembley in October 73, that saw England draw 1-1 and missed their chance of going to the World Cup in 74 in Germany. When Kevin decided to, to finish with the Whitecaps, he moved back to England, had another couple of seasons with Derby County, where he scored eight goals and 56 appearances, and then finished his playing career in the English non-league. He played with Shepshed Charterhouse, Gressley Rovers, Belper Town, Eastwood Town, Heener Town, and Charlotte St James, eventually hanging up his boots as a 50-year-old. That's right, a 50-year-old in 1994. So Kevin Hector was a legend, as we said, at Bradford Park Avenue in Derby County. Another one of his striking partners is a legend with Glasgow Rangers. That can only be one person, wee Willie Johnston. Now, we've spoken to Willie before when he was over in 2014. We brought that out in one of the earlier podcasts. And also played it again this year in episode 333, which came out on April 1st. So I didn't want to include that for a third time, but you can go and check that out. We had a, a really long chat with Willie just about his Whitecaps career, his career with Rangers in Scotland, the media attention that he got over the years. And of course, he did play a handful of games with East Fife at the end of his career. So I have to talk about that and mention that as well. But from a Whitecaps perspective... Willie Johnston has had a lasting legacy. He even still has a corner of BC Place named after him. Willie's Corner, look for it in the north end of the ground by the corner flag. You can't miss all the the banners and the, the placards and everything. He's held in such high esteem here as he is with his Rangers faithful back in Scotland. A Fife lad like myself... He's had a very wild and, and varied career, starting in 1964... He was with Rangers from 1964 to 1972, scoring 89 goals and 211 appearances. Ended up going back to Rangers after he finished up with the Whitecaps, making a further 35 appearances and and two goals. He left Rangers in 72 to go and play in England with West Brom, making 207 appearances and scoring 18 goals. He played nine seasons with the Baggies and then he made this move to Vancouver in 1979. 
We talked about why in that earlier interview, he just kind of wanted to change, wanted to get away from the publicity, the glare, all the media chasing him. He was, of course, coming off getting kicked out of the 1978 World Cup. He was kicked out for failing a a drugs test, brought about by buying over-the-counter allergy medication. It was an unfortunate way for him to, to bow out of the World Cup and it basically put an end to his Scotland career. You just have to look at a number of sports people that's been kind of caught even in recent years with all the knowledge of drug bans and stuff from buying over-the-counter medication. But he was hounded by the press after that in Scotland and England. He needed a change. He needed to get away with it all. And Vancouver allowed him to do that. He could basically live quite an anonymous lifestyle out here. He may not have got a lot of goals in that 1979 season, just three, but he had so many assists and was so productive in creating a number of chances, a number of goals that he didn't even get the, the assist credits for. Johnston, Weimark, Hector, what a terrorising front three that was as well. And there's so many stories that, that Willie can tell over the years and we talked about some of them in that previous interview, so definitely check that out in episode 333 talked about being sent off in New York, almost starting a brawl. There's the famous drinking incident in San Jose where he goes to take a corner. A Scotsman hands him a beer. He takes a sip, says, hey, this is warm, puts it back on the shelf, takes the corner, the white cap score from it. I mean, if this was in a movie, you'd be like, oh, that's a little bit far-fetched. But that was Willie Johnson's life. So because we chatted to Willie before, we didn't do a full-on interview with him this time around. He was also a little bit pushed for time because the the media that he was doing for the Whitecaps that day had kind of overrun. He had just flown in hours earlier. He was tired. He wanted to go and get a cigarette and a beer. So we just had a quick three-minute chat with Willie. Just a little bit about the Whitecaps, a little bit about Rangers, a little bit about Scotland. Here he is, wee Willie Johnston. Willie, back in Vancouver, you're, you've been back a couple of times in recent oh, years. Aye, aye. Is, aye. Does it still hold happy memories? Oh, as I say to the boys, honestly, I love coming here. I'm, I'm, the first time I came, I, my family loved it, my, my kids loved it, and uh, we, we had a great time. Now, and that's how I like coming back. Over the years, like the media has been horrible to you. Oh. But everywhere you've played, Rangers, here, West Brom, everyone's loved you. So that must make you feel good about what you did as a player. I'd done my job. Yeah. I tried to do my job. An entertainer. Yeah. I, 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 professional footballer. <laughs> that was the first one. Yeah. But then if you could do something daft, yeah. that was extra. I mean, you won the, the Cup Winners' Cup with Rangers in 72, and then you won the soccer ball here. I know you've said the Cup Winners' Cup, that's the pinnacle of your career. Oh, is is this... Know pretty close to it. Ah, that's what I'm saying to the boy. It's, honestly, it's in the top five because when you won a trophy, especially when you were playing against the boys that we played against, yeah. they, I mean, they weren't like mug teams. They were good professional yeah. football players. I mean, you had the likes of Pelly and Beckenbauer. They weren't the bad players, eh? So, the wee team, the wee village played Vancouver. Yeah. That's now, what we had. I want to talk a little bit about early in your career because Scott Simon was your manager. Obviously, he's a Rangers legend. Before Rangers, though, he was an East Fife legend. Uh-huh. 
and he took us to the best time of, of our, yeah, our yeah, football yeah. career. What was he like as a manager? Oh, Scott was a gentleman, a perfect gentleman. I think uh, at that time it was a different way of managing and everything like yeah. that. So, and then along came Joe Steen and Mr. Simon yeah. tried to find it hard, but. You've had some good managers that you've been under oh, as well. I've, so. I've, I've, I've met a few. Yeah. I mean, Scott Simon, I was reading your autobiography again, and you mentioned in that he always told you to stay away from Jim Baxter. And, <laughs> but, I mean, back then... One of the best players in the world. Yeah. How could you stay fifer. away? A fighter. <laughs> and he liked a drink. Yeah. But he was one t- fantastic football player. But you, you look back at that Rangers team and it's like, I mean, you look back at the Scotland team at the time, you had all the top talent, you had Dalgleish, yourself, you've got like Derek yeah, Johnston, so, yeah, Sandy Jardine. Yeah, players. What, Danny McGrain. What do you think's happened to Scotland? Uh, they're getting better. I think now they've got a yeah. good manager. I honestly yeah, do. Clark's I think, good, I, think. I, I hope the boy does great because he, he's proved himself as a manager and it's a different thing going to international level but yeah. I hope he does it. So just a very quick chat with Willie Johnson there. When Willie left the White Caps he went back to the UK Played a little bit with Birmingham City, went back to Rangers as I mentioned, came back to play for the Whitecaps in 1982, didn't really recapture those glory days though, only made 18 appearances and didn't get any goals. Eventually going back to Scotland, playing three seasons there with Hearts of Midlothian and ended his playing career with three appearances with my beloved East Fife. It was weird seeing him on the pitch at Bayview, I mean his best days were behind him, he didn't really contribute that much, but you were watching a, a legend on the pitch and, and that was great to see. So the only Whitecaps player from that time that I got to see in the flesh. So that is it for our chats with the players, but we've still got one more big interview to come for you. The man, the mastermind behind it all, head coach Tony Waiters. A man who has gone down in Vancouver and Canadian footballing folklore. It's an interview we brought you in 2018 when we got a chance to chat with him back in September that year in episode 296. But it's a really good chat. We have to bring you it again. And no programme about that 1979 soccer ball win could really go ahead without chatting to Tony Waiters. And we'll bring you that after this. Hello, I'm Nick Datsovich. You're listening to the AFTN Soccer Show. I heard you on the wireless back in 52 Lying awake intently tuning in on you If I was young it didn't stop you coming through They took the credit for your second symphony Rewritten by machine on new technology And now I understand the problems you could see
Welcome back to the last part of this week's AFTN Soccer Show on CITR Radio, 101.9 FM. And that was another song from 1979, released on September the 7th as well, the day before the Whitecaps Soccer Bowl Triumph in New York. That was The Buggles and Video Killed the Radio Star. Got to number one in the UK and all over Europe. Reached number six in the charts in Canada and number 40 in the US. Great song that really reminds me of my childhood and watching that on Top of the Pops. I'm pretty sure the 79 Soccer Bowl wasn't shown on UK TV. I might be wrong there. I just have no recollections of seeing any of the the NASL games over there when I was a kid growing up. If anyone from over there was listening and remembers seeing anything, get in touch with us at AFTN Canada or shoot us an email at AFTNCanada at hotmail.com. Surprising really with the number of UK players that were playing over there and especially with the Whitecaps and so many of them made a massive contribution to the Whitecaps winning the championship that year. Now I said before the break that no programme on that soccer ball win would be complete without hearing from head coach Tony Waiters. Sadly no programme on that win would be complete either without speaking to the two-goal hero from the final, Trevor Wymark. And that means this programme is incomplete. And that makes us sad. I would have loved the chance to, to speak to Trevor Wymark just about his career here, his career with Ipswich Town where he's a, a legend over there. Unfortunately, he didn't come over for the trip. It just wasn't working for him. He just He just couldn't make it happen. Really hope that one day he does come over, decide to to come back to Vancouver and and let us pay tribute and respect to the legend that he is and for his massive role in helping us lift that 1979 soccer ball. He was the two-goal hero in the final and he spent two years with the Whitecaps in the 1979 and the 1980 seasons, scoring 25 goals in his 57 appearances. I kind of detailed Trevor Wymark's journey to the pros in one of our our recent breakdowns of the the Whitecaps season. So check that out on AFTN.ca. But basically he started his football career in Anglian combination with a team called Dis Town. He was working as an apprentice at a builder's in the town. And he tried and had trials but hadn't been picked up by any of the local teams. He was spotted by a scout there playing in that non-league team and Bobby Robson signed him in 1969. Robson, of course, does have Whitecaps connections, coming over in 1967 and 1968 to play for Vancouver Royals. But Wymark signed Pro Forms in 1969, made his debut in February 1970 in a game against Man City, and went on to make 261 appearances for the Tractor Boys, scoring 75 goals. After his time with the Whitecaps, he went back to England playing for Grimsby Town. That'll please our AFTN writer Chris Corrigan. Southend United, Peterborough United, Colchester United. He was capped seven times for England at under-23 level, but only earned one senior cap for England. That was in 1977 in a match against Luxembourg. Not exactly a high-profile game, but you take any cap you can get. He played such a key role, as I said, for the Whitecaps' success that season. But the man that masterminded that success for this season 
and for a number of seasons, and then with the Canadian national team, was head coach Tony Waiters. Born in Southport in Merseyside in England, Waiters was a goalkeeper when he was a player. Started his career in the non-league with Bishop Auckland, signed with Macclesfield Town, and then Blackpool, where he made 257 appearances, before finishing his playing career with Burnley. He earned five caps for the England national team, all in 1964. Unfortunately, of course, that was a time when there was just so many good players in England, and you had the likes of Gordon Banks as the goalkeeper, who then went on, of course, to play in the World Cup with England. After hanging up his boots, Tony Waiters turned to management. He was in charge of Plymouth Argyle for five seasons, from 1972 to 1977, before making the move over to North America to take up the reins at Vancouver Whitecaps for the 1977 season. Each year, he took the Whitecaps to be one better than the other, eventually winning the Soccer Bowl, of course, in 1979, his last season as a manager with the Whitecaps. After that, though, he turned his attention to Canada. He was a head coach from 1981 to 1986 and again from 1990 to 1991, leading Canada to their one and only appearance in a World Cup finals in Mexico in 1986. To celebrate that Canadian team, the Whitecaps had a special event back in 2018. Waiters and a number of the team were over for it. We got a chance to catch up with Tony. As we mentioned, we've already played that last year in the show, but we can't have this show without playing something from Tony Waiters, so we're bringing that interview for you again. Because a lot of things to do with his career, with Vancouver, with Canada, and a lot more beside. So sit back and enjoy the wonderful Tony Waiters. I, I want to talk a little bit with you about Canada, obviously, but also the soccer ball from 1979. Yes. Like, for you, a young lad coming over here, grew up in Southport, played in the UK, did you ever imagine that you would leave such a mark, or not just Vancouver soccer, but, like, Canadian football in general? Uh, no, I mean, uh, it, it was a great opportunity to come here. I got fired from a previous job. And I thank them for, for giving me the opportunity to come here. I, I knew the, the general manager here, John Best. I'd met him at Liverpool when I was on the staff there. And he, he'd played as a youngster for Liverpool. Um, but, you know, coming here um, was, was a, a great privilege, actually. We could have put a team on the field with the, uh, uh, the, the, the Whitecaps of... 11 Canadians, they, they were that good. That's what surprised me, was the quality of the Canadian player. And we could have put a team on the field and being competitive. Um, so when we get around to the uh, qualifying for the, well, initially we, we qualified for the Olympics. Yeah, in 84. Which was great because uh, it, it gave us the opportunity to play at a high level and compete at a high level. Uh, and got us ready for the uh, for the World Cup qualification. Uh, uh, and uh, what what struck me about the Canadian player was great attitude, prepared to work on fitness. We went to Mexico not as the best team, but as the fittest team. Uh, we weren't going to 
actually overcome three European teams. Yeah. Uh, it was a, a, a bit of a tough draw. Uh, what I was afraid of, in 82, El Salvador lost 10-0 to Hungary. I remember that very well. <laughs> and where are you from originally? I'm uh, from Fife in Scotland. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, I, I played most of my career at Blackpool, and it was like a mini Scotland. Yeah. All, all, all the Scottish players like to go to Blackpool. So, so we had some very good, very good players. It's not the same today, is it? No, not at all. It's like you look around, like the the top league, the first division back then. It was all Scots, like Liverpool, yes. and now there's hardly any. I know. Right. They, they used to call them Tanner Ball players, yeah. didn't they? But they play on the, you know, like like kids did here. You know, the Lennardoses and, uh, and, and Dale Mitchells, they played, played, played. And that's where you become a good player. Yeah. Um, I want to show you something. A little trip down memory lane for you. Oh, okay. These are all the guys from the 86 Panini album. Right. It's like when, when you look back at them all then, it's like you could never have imagined that that squad was going to be the only Canadian team ever to be at a World Cup. Right. No. Paul James, do you know anything yeah, about him? Yeah, he's not had a good time recently, I know. No, he's terrible. Yeah. He's on his 90th day of a hunger strike. And I've been in touch with him and tried to persuade him that wasn't the way to go with his... I know, it's been tough. He's got a genuine beef and uh, he's, he's, not, he's been let down by, by people in Canada. And, and, and uh, this was a great story, George Pecos. Yeah. But what happened, John Catliff, who's not on here, we're playing at Honduras. I don't think John Catliff's here. Yeah, no, he's not. They didn't have all of them on. And, and, and John Catliff did his knee in the cruciate ligament. And George Pecos came on. And I was at a dinner in, uh, in Victoria uh, a, a year or so ago. And what happened is the Honduran goalkeeper played the ball out to the left back, short goal kick. And he, he, he dwelled on it. We got the pressure on him. Uh, Igor Vrablik. He, he, he played it inside and we stole the ball. Randy Reagan kicked it uh, towards the penalty area. George hit it first time. I said it bounced four times before it went in. He said, no, it was only three. So <laughs> it was the right thing to do. Now, the goalkeeper was still re returning from his goal kick. And he hit it. And it hit it on target. And, and, and we won the game 1-0. And then we went to Costa Rica and tied 0-0. And then the final game was in St. John's, Newfoundland. George was in the team then, because uh, uh, John Catliff hadn't recovered. And he scored the first goal. Ian, Ian Bridge, who was, was a very good player. Uh, we, we, we brought Carl Valentine back to play his first game for Cardiff in that deciding game. Um, we'd we'd fast-tracked Carl. Uh, through his uh, Canadian citizenship. Yeah. But the league collapsed, he went off to West Brom and he was hoping to play for England. Oh, really? Yeah, and he was doing well. He kept that quiet. <laughs> yeah. So I called him up and said, look, you have a better chance of going to the World Cup with us than you have going there with England. Come and play for us. So he came in for the last game because we had injuries and suspension and uh, he played the corner in. Ian Bridge goes in and, and knocking players around all over the place. Ball drops down, George Pecos 
started at 1-0 uh, and he, he played three games, scored two goals. What's your, what's your biggest memory? Obviously you didn't win any games, but what was your biggest memory from Mexico? What's always going to live with you from that, that tournament? I, I, I think um, you know, that very first game against France <coughs> and uh, players were saying they stood in the uh, the the, uh, the, the, the uh, area where they went on the field, and they're looking across. There's Michel, Coutinho, and uh, all the rest of them going, "Oh dear!" <laughs> Paul Dolan might have been 20. Yeah, he was really young. He, he yeah. was the youngest goalkeeper to ever, ever play in a World Cup, and and uh, so that that was the memory. We're going against the European champions, uh, and and my fear. Uh, obviously, is that we didn't get blown out of the water. Yeah. Because that, and we came away and we hadn't been. We'd been competitive in all three games, but we hadn't scored a goal. Bobby, Bobby Nanduzi had the best chance of all. He was right in front of goal and, and fluffed it. Yeah. I'm sure you've reminded him of that a lot of the times no, over the no, years. No, no, I don't want to embarrass him. <laughs> <laughs> um, one last thing I want to show you. That's the programme from the 1979 oh, yeah. Soccer Bowl. Yeah. But I mean, that's the biggest moment in Vancouver Whitecaps history. Yes. Just what's your what's your memories of that time? And it, what was more special to you, getting to the World Cup with Canada, or winning that championship with with the Whitecaps? I think this was just as important as as, as anything else. It was it was a great day when we when we got there. We had a lot of problems going into the the final game because the, the, the players a lot of them were Brits they said they came to me and said uh, we want our bonus doubling yeah they're getting five thousand with the peanuts really five thousand dollars and and the club turned them down and I, I, I got a bit of the blame because I went to John Best who is the GM I said you've got to find a way of getting that bonus and I said even put it into their contracts in the next year and they said no. So the atmosphere was absolutely poisonous. I've, I've, I've watched some video of the game and yeah. So we're, we're in the, the uh, locker room before the game and Bob McNabb and I had made a decision. We're in a hotel. Uh, we weren't booked in for the Saturday night. We thought the Cosmos would get there, not us. <laughs> so they would have gone home. So. The, the, the hotel says you've got to get out of the hotel Saturday morning well we didn't and, and uh, so the players could have a little lie in and, uh, and have a pre-game meal so we, we got this situation they didn't know about the hotel at that time but we go to uh, to, to the Giant Stadium and uh, Alan Ball I'd known since he was 15. He said, called everyone together, he said, boys, he said, you're going to remember this day for the rest of your lives. Let's make it a good day. Broke uh, it, everyone responded. And so going onto the field, they, they were competing. Uh, Willie Johnson went in with a ball under his shirt as if he was pregnant. So, so that was, uh, and, and then the reception we got when we came back yeah. here, that was a bit of uh, 
good thinking by John Best and, and his wife Claudia. They, they booked uh, 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 open limos, picked us up at the airport. There was about 120,000 people, Robson Square. So it was a great memory because uh, uh, Jim Mackay was the play-by-play -play guy for, I think it was ABC. And, it, and he called the Whitecaps, he called them a village. So the village of Vancouver, which incensed everybody. Yeah. That's great. Thank you so much for your time, right. Tony. It's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you. The wonderful Tony Waiters there. 82 now, still sharp as anything, and just so much fun to sit and chat to. If you ever get the chance to spend some time in his company, enjoy every moment of it. He's just a wealth of knowledge. He's got some great stories from over the years. Fantastic guy to chat to. When you think what Tony Waiters has done for football in Vancouver, football in Canada... It's kind of crazy to think that it's only recently that he was inducted into the BC Sports Hall of Fame. The reason for that, when we kind of queried that at the time as to why is it taking so long, is he has to get nominated and no, turned out over the years no one had nominated him. But he's there now, he's an absolute legend. Will we ever see the likes again in Vancouver and Canada? Who knows, but you have to hope so. So that is nearly all for this special episode of the AFTN Soccer Show. But we can't have an episode of the AFTN Soccer Show without a wavelength. Now, we would have liked to have brought you a kind of white caps related song from 1979. We could have brought you a version of White is the Colour from 1980. So close and with a, a lot of the players from the, the 79 squad in it. But I think that song has been played a lot. We thought about bringing you the Proclaimers version of that song that was released as a, a free CD by the Whitecaps in the USL days at Swanguard. But instead, we're going to go back to 1983. It is a Whitecaps song. It was a 7-inch single that was released. Vancouver Whitecaps squad from that 1983 NASL season. So a few stragglers still from the 79 squad. Recorded with members of the Kerrisdale Elementary School. Now, if anyone listening to this was part of that recording or knows somebody that was part of that recording, get in touch with us. We'd love to chat to you about it. AFT in Canada on Twitter, AFT in Canada at hotmail.com by email. But this is the song from 1983 and it's called This Time.
Vancouver Whitecaps 1983 NASL squad with backing vocals from Kerrisdale Elementary School. Song called This Time, which may sound familiar, and the reason it may sound familiar is because it was also the official England World Cup squad from the 1982 World Cup. Why they chose to cover it, I've no idea, but... Vancouver did host the 1983 NASL Soccer Bowl, so maybe it was just their way of saying, this time, we're going to get it right, we're going to get back to the Soccer Bowl. Sadly, they didn't. They only appeared in that one Soccer Bowl in 1979, but the memories will last forever. Hopefully the memories of this show will last forever as well. As I said at the start, I just hope you've enjoyed it as much as we have putting it together. Let us know, get in touch with us. We'd like to do some more of these kind of documentary style chat and interview things as well over the, the next year or so about a various number of things. So if you've enjoyed it, let us know. That is it for this week's show. We'll be back with our normal show next Sunday on CITR Radio at 11pm. Until then, give us a follow on Twitter at AFTN Canada. Check our stuff out on the website AFTN.ca. Give us a follow on Instagram at AFTN Soccer. And subscribe to our channel on YouTube, AFTN Canada. But until next week, thanks for listening. Take care and mourn the Soccer Bowl winning Whitecaps. Going to your first match is an experience you never forget. The atmosphere of what's going on around the pitch looks beautiful and you always look and go, wow, I'd love to play here one day. If you get the bug, it's going to stay with you for life. <laughs>